Hey, it's Doug Sandler from the Turnkey Podcast. When I'm not creating my own podcast episodes, I'm listening to the Follow Your Dream Podcast, hosted by Robert Miller. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Mort Krim, renowned journalist and TV news anchor in Detroit for many years. Mort was the inspiration behind Will Ferrell's Anchorman movies. How about that? He's got a wonderful memoir that he's written, and we'll talk about all of that and his storied career. My featured song in this episode, and I always feature one of my songs underneath the introduction and then at the end, is called Studio One from the Project Grand Slam album Play. And I chose this song because TV news takes place in a studio. And for all I know, Mort may have broadcast for years from Studio One. So Mort Krim, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you, Robert. So Mort, on, on these episodes, I typically go back in time and I start to talk about what the formative years were and what the dream was of my guest. But I wanted to fast forward and do this a little bit differently. You are from an era in journalism that spoke to things like values and truth and facts and faith. I'll call it the Walter Cronkite era, and I know you knew Walter Cronkite. What has happened to the news in this country? It's not a a simple, single answer because there have been so many forces that have been operating simultaneously, some of them technological, some of them sociological. Uh, Let's start with the technology. The cable channels, the proliferation of channels, of course, has given us so many different voices. When I started in the business, and in fact, almost to the end of my career in television, uh, there were essentially three major stations in every major market, in every city. One was the ABC affiliate, one was the NBC affiliate, one was the CBS affiliate. There was a fourth station in many markets. It was PBS, was the public broadcasting station. And if the market was larger, they might have one or two independent stations. But for news, essentially, people looked to one of the three network-affiliated stations, both for their network news, uh, which was presented essentially once a day at 6 or 6.30 in the evening. That's when Walter Cronkite was on and Huntley and Brinkley. Peter Jennings for for a while, and before that, before Peter, it was uh, Frank Reynolds. It was pretty simple, and then you had your local newscasts that would usually sandwich with some local news before the network, local news after the network, and then we did our local news at eleven o'clock at night. If you wanted to see news in this pre uh, pre cable pre internet pre cable pre internet day. And it was also pre-video recording. So, you know, now we can pretty much uh, TiVo or record anything we want to watch and do it on our schedule. So you had fixed times. You had fixed and limited channels of news information. 
and you were pretty much on their schedule. Now, one of the things that you had that you don't have today is a more of a consensus about facts. Now, you had people who disagreed with how to interpret those facts or what those facts meant or how they would approach certain problems. You had your conservatives and your liberals, your Democrats and your Republicans, your independents, and they all had different views. But there wasn't as much argument about the facts. I don't ever remember in my lifetime, in my journalistic lifetime, when there was a, uh, a national election uh, that was disputed the way this one has been disputed. Now, granted, in 2000, when, uh, when Gore and Bush were so evenly tied, it took the Supreme Court to decide which one was actually the winner. But when that happened, Al Gore, very graciously, you know, I'm, I'm sure he was unhappy about losing. But he accepted the ruling of the court and never tried to contend that uh, Bush was an illegitimate president. That's new in our lifetime. But as you just said, facts should be objective. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be a debate as to what the fact is. The interpretation of that fact, whether one likes that fact or doesn't like that fact, that's subject to everybody's opinion. But we're in an era where people don't agree on the basics of what is a fact. Well, we've come through a four-year period when uh, we were introduced to something called alternative facts. I don't know what alternative <laughs> facts are. I guess if you live in an alternate universe, you can have your own facts. That's right. Your facts and my facts. Yeah. And, and I think that's very dangerous for the country. I think it's, it's a major reason why we have the, the deepening divide and divisions that we have in, in this country. Uh, there was a time when we, we didn't see the person who had a different viewpoint, a different politics, a different philosophy than ours as the enemy. We simply saw them as somebody, a, a, a neighbor, a friend, a colleague. We worked with them. We raised our kids together and, so we had a different view about how the problem should be solved. The Democrats and the liberals and the progressives tended to emphasize a, a stronger role for government. They tended to emphasize a more community approach to solving problems. The conservatives and the Republicans uh, had a more individualistic approach, more uh, fiscal uh, belt tightening, but we, have, we haven't seen that from the Republicans in recent years. But today, it's not just that I have a different way of solving the problem than you do. It's that if you don't see it my way, you're the enemy, you're stupid, and your facts are wrong. But I want you to relate this to the, the industry that you were part of. You were a journalist, and you're talking about the way the public interprets things and how they regard, or the politicians. But journalists used to give an unfettered view of what was happening in this world. I'm sure that you did that when you were an anchor for those 19 years. But it's not that way anymore. No, you're right. And I I, I went to uh, Northwestern uh, Medill Journalism School for my graduate program. And I know it was the same in, in good journalism schools all across the country, that the first thing we were taught was be fair be objective, get it right. There, there was not to be any dispute over the facts. Now, sometimes facts are a little bit difficult to interpret. And I'm not saying that every story is easy to find the, the absolute truth of a story. But it was always our objective. It was always what we tried to do. Uh, 
Yes, we had our personal preferences and our personal biases and predilections, just as a judge does. But we expect that judge, when he puts the robe on and steps out of his chambers and into the courtroom, to leave all those personal feelings behind and to professionally approach what he's about to hear in court with the objectivity and fairness that is the hallmark of a good judge. It's also the hallmark of a good journalist. I had my political preferences. I had my uh, my likes and dislikes. But when I assumed the role of a journalist, when I sat down to write a story or went out to cover a story or to do an interview, I tried to leave all that at home and approach it uh, the way a good judge is supposed to approach the bench with as much objectivity and fairness as I could possibly muster. And I think I did a pretty good job because uh, in Detroit, in the same year, I was approached by uh, some functionaries, uh, people on the money side, in both the Republican and the Democratic Party, asking me if I'd be interested in running for Congress. The fact is, neither party had any idea what my politics or my political (laughs) leanings were. And I thought, well, that's great. Uh, That means I'm playing it pretty straight, pretty fair. If, if each party feels they would be comfortable with me because I've, I've not shown any bias or any uh, preference on the air. Well, this is exactly what I was trying to get at with my opening question, that the world of journalism has changed. And it has not changed, in my opinion, for the better. And we've now got this fragmented situation where Fox News has their facts and MSNBC and CNN have their facts and the national networks, which do not have the same viewership that they used to have. They've got their own facts. And we're now in an awful situation as a country because of that. We can't agree on what the true facts are. And that's, uh, that's a difference. I see it, and I think you see it as well, from the era that you came up in. Am I correct? Well, you, you are correct. And uh, Thomas Jefferson once said that given the choice, if, if he had to choose between having uh, newspapers or government, he would quickly choose newspapers. And <laughs> I think that was his way of saying that uh, journalism, uh, getting the facts out to people is, is such a vital part of a democracy. How do you vote? How do you decide issues? How do you decide policy? If you're not informed, if you don't know, if you don't have the truth and the facts, and that's the role of the journalist. That's why we've traditionally been called a fourth estate. Uh, the government has, uh, you know, legislative, administrative, and judicial. We're called a fourth estate, estate because it's our job uh, to keep tabs on all the other three, plus business and labor and all the other institutions in our society that have power. Speaking truth to power and being a watchdog Uh, on those uh, institutions in our society that can affect people's lives, that's the job of the journalist. And we can only do that as long as we're true to the facts. Well said. All right, let's go back to uh, an earlier time for you. Uh, You came from a family of ministers. Am I correct? Absolutely correct. I used to say we had enough preachers in our family to start our own denomination. <laughs> All right. So it's it's quite a trip from being a minister or a teenage evangelist, which I understand you were, to then getting into journalism. Explain, if you would, how you made that transition. Well, I grew up in a, in a conservative uh, religious home, Christian home, 
wonderful parents, wonderful grandparents. Uh, I reached a point in my life when I began to question uh, certain dogmas and doctrines that I had uh, uh, had presented to me as a child as being the absolute truth. And I began to, to question some of that. Uh, eventually had to go out and, and uh, work my way back to my own faith, uh, which uh, I still haven't answered all the questions. I don't think anybody will in this lifetime, but I've, uh, I've made peace with the fact that you don't have to answer all the questions in order to in order to have a faith and in order to, uh, to live a constructive life. But when I was five years old, my grandmother tells the story. I was living with her at that time while my father was in college seminary. And uh, she was an English teacher. And she had really uh, driven into me, you know, the, how important good grammar was and you don't use words like ain't. And she was also uh, quite a devout Christian and rather strict in her, you know, you didn't swear around her. I didn't even say darn or gosh. So combining these two influences from her, um, according to her story, uh, had a little neighbor boy over one day. This was pre-television. And I pulled out the radio bench that my grandfather used to sit on this bench in front of the radio and listen to, you know, the Lone Ranger and Fibber McGee and Molly and all the old radio shows. And I pretended this radio bench was a pulpit. It was as normal for me to play preacher as for most kids to play cops and robbers because that was that was the influence in my in my house. So I had this little neighbor boy over. And I had heard him say, damn and hell, and, you know, in our church, we just didn't use words like that. So I began to preach a sermon and I pointed my finger at him and I said, and if you continue to say bad words like damn and hell and ain't, you're going to hell. I guess I equated ain't the same as swear words because my grandmother had, had uh, influenced me so much on the importance of good grammar. I grew up in that environment, and um, I actually traveled with my uncle. I was also a bit of a musician, played the keyboard, piano, and accordion. He played the electric guitar and sang in addition to being a, a preacher. So I traveled with him on the evangelistic circuit and decided I could do that. So at the age of 16, did my high school, my correspondence, finally went back and, and finished high school the last year. But I was on the road as a teenage evangelist, playing the piano, playing the accordion, and preaching every night. Actually was ordained by my church when I was 17. I hadn't yet completed high school. I went on and completed college and, and got a master's degree. And uh, But in the interim, I made the decision that I had to leave the ministry and the study and preparation for the ministry because there were just too many things that I was expected to believe, too many dogmas that I, as a minister in that church, was expected to uh, promote, and I couldn't do it. And I decided the one place where I can have an absolute, honest, open, objective look at life and philosophy and religion and the world is as a journalist. So it was really... Uh, that desire, and that's why the subtitle of my book is A Journalist's Search for Truth. That search for truth is not just the facts as we've been talking about them and as they relate to good journalism. My search was for the cosmic answers. What is it all about? You know, is there a God? Does life have any meaning? Does it have any purpose other than what we just attribute to it?
And uh, that's been an, a fascinating and exciting lifelong adventure. And as a journalist, I didn't have to worry about offending anybody or slaying any sacred cows. I could have an unfettered, honest uh, search. And it's been a wonderful path. Hey, everybody. My Follow Your Dream handbook is an Amazon number one bestseller. It's a combination memoir of my unique musical journey and a step-by-step how-to for you to follow and succeed at your dream. It's available at Amazon and wherever books are sold. Check it out today. Now, you got into journalism, or at least one of the first things you did was in radio. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. 15 years in radio before I moved into television. 15 years. All right, so tell us about some of the more memorable stories and events that you covered in radio and then transitioning into television. Well, I'd worked in local radio, and then when I went into the Air Force, uh, I produced radio and television programming for the Air Force, for Armed Forces Radio and for Strategic Air Command. So by the time I came out, uh, I had, uh, first of all, an opportunity to work at WLS Radio in Chicago, which was a big rock station at that time, while I was in grad school at Northwestern in Evanston. Then I was offered a job when I graduated. Uh, by WNEW in New York, which at that time was a major powerhouse news station, uh, also music, but uh, they had a reputation for uh, being the best local news operation in New York City. And after a year there, I was uh, hired by ABC Radio Network. Back in the day, we're talking mid-60s, early to mid-60s, uh, network radio was still uh, a very significant voice. And so to to get hired as a correspondent and an anchor on the radio network out of New York uh, was very satisfying. And, and But I reached a point uh, in my uh, mid-30s when I decided, you know, if I'm going to get into television, I've, I've had a, already had a pretty long career in radio. Uh, if I'm going to get into television, I've got to do it now. Well, you can't you can't move in New York City from a, a number one radio anchor spot on the network to a, a comparable spot in television. It just doesn't work that way. So I had become friends with Walter Cronkite because both of us covered the space program. I was down there for ABC Radio. He was there for CBS. But we'd gotten acquainted, and uh, I got to know him well enough that when I decided it was time to move to TV, I gave him a call. He invited me over to his office, and we talked about it. And he said, have you considered going to a local station? He said, they need good news people. And he said, I have a friend in Louisville, Kentucky that owns uh, the, the Louisville Courier Journal and Times and their television station. Long story short, uh, I got a job there as an anchor man, and, and after three years in Louisville, went to Philadelphia, which was at that time the fourth market in the country. From there to Chicago and eventually to Detroit and had a, an almost 20-year career as an anchor man in Detroit. Getting a reference from Walter Cronkite is almost like getting a, a letter of recommendation from God. So you did very well to pick him out. <laughs> and tell me about your time as the anchor in Detroit. I mean, it was a kind of a tumultuous time, as it always is. What are some of the memories and the stories that come back to you from your time as an anchor in Detroit? Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to backtrack because I don't think I really answered your first question about some of the exciting stories I covered for radio. That's fine. Let me just give you a couple. Uh, the, the most exciting thing I covered was the space program. And I was down at the Cape 
for Apollo 11. I was actually there to cover all the manned space shots from Gemini 3 through Apollo 12. Got to know the astronauts. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I did a podcast with uh, Jim Lovell, who was the commander of Apollo 13, uh, you know, the one that exploded and almost didn't make it back. Right. That was an exciting time. And of course, it was uh, it was a pioneering time for us in space and, and for moon travel, moonwalks. I also had an opportunity to, to travel with President uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Frank Reynolds was the White House correspondent at that time for ABC, and they always sent me on the important trips to cover just for radio. So I went around the world with Johnson, seven Asian nations and the Vietnam Summit Conference in Manila. And actually, he made a quick trip, and I was one of the pool reporters uh, to go to Vietnam with him on that uh, trip in 1966. Hold on one second. I want to ask you, what were your impressions of Johnson as a, as a person? I mean, you traveled with him. You must have gotten to know him on a, on a more personal basis than most people, of course. He was uh, an effective leader. Uh, he was charming. He was personable. I got to see enough of his personality that I had no problem believing them. Uh, I think he could be ruthless, but he was also quite effective. And he also had a tender side. I was at a party uh, at the White House uh, when Merriman Smith was the White House correspondent, I believe, for Associated Press. It might have been U UPI. Uh, it's been so many years now, I don't recall. But he was a White House correspondent for one of the major wire services. And his son had just been killed in Vietnam. And, of course, Johnson was, you know, he was commander-in-chief of that whole operation. Ultimately, it was that war that cost him the presidency and forced him to not run again. But I saw him go over to Merriman Smith, and I guess it had only been a couple of weeks since his son had been killed, and he put his arm around him. And he said, Smitty, I am so sorry. He said, this is, is the toughest thing about a very tough job. And he just stood there with his arm around uh, Merriman Smith for uh, several seconds and uh, saying nothing beyond that. But um, he was genuinely moved. And you could tell that uh, for all the toughness of this old Texas uh, cowboy type president, uh, there was also a, a, a tender side. Well, you could see there were, there were at least two very different sides to Johnson's personality because on the one hand, he enacts the great society legislation, which he's known for. And yet, on the other hand, he got bogged down in that horrible quagmire of Vietnam. Well, and he also, he also got the Civil Rights Bill passed, and that, that was big. Yes. I, that's what I was referring to as part oh. of the great society. Yes. But I'm just saying that uh, the relationship that the press had with presidents like Johnson, like Kennedy, uh, it's it's probably totally different than the relationship that the press has today with presidents, would you say? Yeah, and we've come through four years of an aberration. Uh, I don't think there's any way to compare the relationship of Donald Trump to the press uh, with that of any other president. Every single president has had problems with certain members of the press because you know, nobody likes it when a watchdog is looking over your shoulder and, and uh, checking on you to make sure you, you do everything right. Presidents don't do everything right, and they get called on it, and they don't like it. I can't think of a single president in my lifetime that didn't get irritated with and angry, and sometimes, uh, you know, Kennedy canceled a 
subscription to the Washington Post. And um, I think Cheney one time kicked a reporter off his airplane and so on and on. But, but prior to Trump, I can't remember ever a president referring to the press generally as the enemy of the people. That was a whole new level of, uh, of dialogue, and it was more than just dialogue. It represented a, a reality in the, in the ruptured relationship between the Trump White House and the press, and it filtered its way down through all of the people who worked for Trump and were loyal to Trump. Hopefully, we're past that aberration, and I think there's still going to be uh, the press is there to criticize and to uh, keep tabs on what's going on with our government. But I hope we never again uh, stoop to that level of uh, looking at the press uh, and the press looking at the White House as uh, enemies of each other. Well, I hope you're right that the damage has been contained, but it's hard to believe that it really has been contained. No, it hasn't. It's not over. We're still uh, we're still suffering a lot of the aftertaste of a very very sour experience. Okay. So um, you left the anchor position, I believe, in 1997. Tell us what you've been doing since then. Well, the biggest thing right now is that my memoir has just been released. And if you don't mind me telling people how they can obtain a copy, please. the website is uh, Mort Krim Speaks, M-O-R-T-C-R-I-M Speaks.com. And they can order the book directly from there and get a, a personally autographed copy. You just tell me in the order how you want it signed. It's also available uh, at, uh, through Amazon and at all the major bookstores. Uh, but uh, that has uh, that. It took me about five years to write that memoir, and it's called "Anchored: A Journalist's Search for Truth." And as I said, the the title is is not about a search for facts in the journalistic sense, but it's a search for the truth about life, truth about meaning, truth about relationships, the truth about the things that really are more important to most of us than a dozen news stories. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for, and you know, you know exactly where I'm going here, about Anchorman, the Will Ferrell movie and series which I understand was uh, a parody in a sense based upon you and your career. So uh, tell us a little bit about that and your feelings on it. And uh, I know you had an experience with Will Ferrell. So uh, talk to us about that as well. Yeah, the introduction in the book is, uh, is my story of how that came about and meeting Will Ferrell at the uh, Anchorman premiere party. I first got wind, and I guess the whole country got wind of the fact that he had uh, had based the movies, uh, Anchorman 1 and Anchorman, uh, the follow-up, the sequel, uh, on Jessica Savage and me when we were co-anchoring in Philadelphia. And Veronica Corningstone uh, was based on Jessica, and, and, uh, and uh, Ron Burgundy was based on me. But it was strictly a parody. And uh, I had a lot of people <laughs> ask me that, weren't you really offended? And I said, no. I said, I used to watch Ted Knight, uh, you know, on the Mary Tyler Moore show. He was this big buffoon of an anchor man, but you've got to be able to laugh at yourself. And so I, I, I told Will Farrell had seen me do a lot of interviews because once he made it known that uh, Jessica and I had been the, the role models for this poof, uh, I began getting inundated. Uh, with interview requests. I was on Fox and Friends and Good Morning America and the Today Show. And uh, 
uh, all kinds of newspaper interviews. And Will had seen several of these. So when I met him at the party, he said, you know, I want to thank you for how, for the good humor that you've shown in all of this. He said, some people would be pretty offended. I said, Will, if you had billed this movie as a documentary, I'd really be pissed. <laughs> I said, as a parody, as a satire, I thought it was good fun, and uh, we all have to be able to laugh at ourselves. Good for you. I'm glad that you have that point of view. We have been talking here with Mort Krim, who is, as I started out saying, a renowned journalist and anchorman. He was on WDIV in Detroit for 19 years. Think about that until 1997. Mort, as a final question, you know, this is a podcast that's called Follow Your Dream. And uh, I ask all my guests if they would give advice to the dreamers out there, the people that have a dream, and I believe that everybody has a dream, but for whatever reason, they just haven't pursued that dream or they haven't done enough to move it forward. What would be the advice that you would give to such a person? Well, the first thing I would would recommend is check out your dream uh, to make sure that it has some uh, realistic basis to it. And I say that because, you know, we hear sometimes these self-help people and books and everything says you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. That's not quite true. For example, I can never become Queen of England for obvious reasons. So if you start with that absurdity and work backwards, you discover that, you know, I can't play for the NFL. And I never could, even when I was young. So I think you start by assessing what your talents are, what your abilities are. And dream some dreams that are within the parameters of the possible. Now, I think uh, a lot of things that may seem quite out of reach are still within the realm of the possible if you have the grit and the determination and the basic equipment. There are many things that I could never be, but there were other things that I could have been if I had set a different dream for myself. So within the parameters or the influences that caused me to dream. I've already explained how journalism was a good course for me because it allowed me the freedom to investigate and to look at life and ask the big questions uh, without the constraints that I found in the church, in the pulpit. But I had to assess my own abilities and talents, and I thought, okay, I have a decent voice. I have intelligence. I'm not a genius. I'm not ever going to be an Einstein, but... uh, I can get up and dress myself and feed myself every day. I've got, you know, reasonably good intelligence. I like people. I find the world infinitely fascinating. And that's that's uh, good for a journalist because I, I call this profession the front row seat to the greatest show on earth and you get paid for doing it. So once you assess, okay, this is what I like to do. This is what I have the ability to do, the basic ability. Um, And if I work and train and study and pursue, this is a reasonable goal to attain. So uh, I don't subscribe to the idea that anybody and everybody can do anything and everything. I think that's uh, setting yourself up for disappointment and failure. But I do think most people can do more than they think they can. Most people can go higher than they ever imagined they could. But you start by saying, is this a realistic dream? Am I equipped? Do I have the basic equipment to pursue that dream if I work hard at it? And then go for it. 
Words of wisdom from Mort Krim. Mort, thank you again for being a guest on this podcast. Again, uh, as we started out with the uh, podcast episode, I played you a song of mine called Studio One underneath the introduction. Now you're going to hear the entire song. I hope you like it, and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.